you for joining us today here at Victory. At Victory Church, we are a community of authentic, spirit-led Christ followers transformed to walk in victory. Join us as we begin today's message. Has anyone in here ever felt the pain of, of shame or rejection or low self-worth before? For some of you, you might hear those words and you might think to yourself, man, that describes the way that I feel in my life right now. And every single one of us has felt this way before. Every single one of us has felt the pain, the sting of shame and rejection and low self-worth at some point, really at many points throughout our life. And today we're going to be diving into the story of a man who felt this almost all the time for the majority of his life. A man whose life was marked in many ways by the pain of shame and rejection and low self-worth. Until one day he was given an invitation. An invitation that completely changed his whole life. And as we dive into a story, we're going to find out how that is and, and why that is. But the big idea specifically that we're going to be diving into today is this. Because of Jesus, we've all been given a seat at the table. Because of Jesus, we've all been given a seat at the table. Are you willing to take yours? Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your love. I thank you for your gospel, your, your good news message about your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Jesus, for what you've done for us on the cross. You're the reason that we gather here today. You're the name is, your name is the only one that we want to exalt today. Father, I pray that if there's anybody here today that doesn't know you, that hasn't come into a relationship with your son, Jesus Christ, I pray that, I pray that you would break down those walls, break down those barriers in their life, anything that is keeping them from you, Jesus. I pray for the rest of us that you would continue that process of molding us and making us. I pray that you would help us to, to understand that we've all been given an invitation. Every single one of us has been given an invitation. And you've already done the hard work. The only question is whether or not we're going to accept that invitation. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would take over, that you would use me and speak in and through me, a broken, sinful man. We thank you, we love you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. The story that we're going to be diving into today is found in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 9. So if you've got your Bible, you can go ahead and uh, open it up. Or if you've got the, uh, the phone, if you've got a smartphone, you've got a Bible. So you can open it up or you can click, um, go to 2 Samuel, again, chapter 9. That's where we're going to be at today, and we're going to have it up on the screen as well. So let's go ahead and dive in, starting with verse 1. It says this. David asked, is there anyone remaining from the family of Saul I can show kindness to for Jonathan's sake? There was a servant of Saul's family named Ziba. They summoned him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? I am your servant, he replied. So the king asked, Is there anyone left of Saul's family that I can show the kindness of God to? 
Ziba said to the king, there is still Jonathan's son who was injured in both feet. The king asked him, where is he? Ziba answered the king, you'll find him in Lodabar at the house of Maker, son of Emil. So King David had him brought from the house of Maker, son of Emil, and Lodabar. Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David, fell face down, and paid homage. David said, Mephibosheth, I am your servant, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, since I intend to show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all your grandfather Saul's fields, and you will always eat meals at my table. Mephibosheth paid homage and said, What is your servant that you take an interest in a dead dog like me? So in this text, we're introduced to a man with a name that I hope none of you name your kids. (laughs) It's Mephibosheth. And the last part of his name literally means shame. Like imagine having that name as a kid growing up in school. Hey, what's your name? Well, you know, part of it's shame. That'd be horrible, that that was his name. And something that we need to understand about Mephibosheth is Mephibosheth was Jonathan's son. And Jonathan, if you remember, was the son of Saul, the former king of of Israel. And so that's, that's who he was. And if you remember, we've talked about this through this series, Saul is the guy that had hunted down and tried to kill David. For years, David had to hide in caves. He had to hide in different places, running for his life because Saul would stop at nothing to kill him. That was Mephibosheth's grandfather. But something we need to understand about Saul and about Jonathan is both Saul and Jonathan had died in battle at this point in time. And at this point in time in this story, Mephibosheth is a grown man. So Saul and Jonathan died in battle against the Philistine years ago at this point because Mephibosheth was only five years old when his father and his grandfather were killed. And so Mephibosheth was born into a royal family and he was looked at as royalty. But before he had time to really, really experience this and really understand what that even meant, his whole life did a complete 180 degree turn. His whole life completely changed. He went from royalty to poverty. He went from security and safety to running and even hiding for his life, all in a moment at only five years old. And to make matters worse, Mephibosheth's mother had most likely passed away long before his father Jonathan had passed away. And we don't really know how or why It might have even been in in childbirth. All we know that she wasn't in the picture. And so while Jonathan, Mephibosheth's father, and also his grandfather and his uncles were gone off to war, which was the majority of the time, Mephibosheth was raised by a nanny back home. That was the person that raised him and and took care of him. And so I want you to imagine with me a five-year-old little boy, a five-year-old Mephibosheth. He's healthy. He's got a lot of energy. One day he's outside, maybe he's playing, running around, doing what five-year-old kids, healthy five-year-old boys do. And everything seems great. Everything is going well in his life. And then all of a sudden, he sees somebody off in the distance. And maybe they're sprinting, maybe they're running on, you know, they're on horseback. 
Either way, they're, they're on their way. They're headed towards the palace, towards the place where he's at and straight towards his nanny that he sees off in the distance. And he sees this man and he has this look of horror on his face as though he's seen a ghost or something. And, and the man is like screaming and, and you can tell that he's, he's, really, he's really afraid about something. And, and then he looks and he sees his nanny and as his nanny is talking to this man, she all of a sudden gets this look of terror across her face as well and starts crying. And, and he probably doesn't really hear everything that's happening because the man is probably talking to his nanny. But one thing that he probably does hear is that his dad, Jonathan, and his grandpa, Saul, along with many of his other uncles and so many other people that he knew, all these other people that had gone off to war, had died, had been slaughtered in battle against the Philistines. And so before he even has time to like take this in and to really kind of grasp what's going on and barely even have time to, to cry and to talk about it, anything, his nanny comes up, picks him up, and starts running in the opposite direction of his home, carrying him away from everything that he's known, everything that he's loved. She probably didn't really have uh, time and, and even the strength to take anything with her, maybe like a little pack with some food, maybe a little water, but that's it. He has had to leave everything and probably doesn't even know where he's going at the time. And you can imagine kind of putting yourself in the shoes of a five-year-old little boy. And what's going on and just finding out that his dad and his grandpa and all these other people had died. And now he's having to leave everything that he knows and he loves, not knowing if he's ever going to be able to come back. And see, for a five-year-old little boy, he didn't really understand probably what was going on in that moment. And why his nanny was carrying him and sprinting in the opposite direction away from the house going who knows where. He probably didn't know. She might not have even known in the moment. But see, what she understood, what the, what the nanny understood was that if the Philistines found out about Mephibosheth, and if they found out where this little boy was, that they would come and they would slaughter him too, that they would kill him. And so she knew that she had to get out, and maybe she didn't know exactly where she was going, but she was going to run, and she was going to get as far away from there as she possibly could. And so I can imagine this little boy being hold, held by this, this woman, and maybe even it, was even it could have been a young girl that was a nanny, very scared, probably tears running down her eyes, maybe even screaming it at times. And, and as she's running, we, we don't know exactly when it happened or, or how it happened. But as she's running, maybe her, her legs start to get tired. She may have been running for a, a good while, maybe even miles while she's carrying this five-year-old little boy and maybe even a pack with food. And then also through the tears, probably the tears streaming down her face, she probably can't see that well. Also looking back, wondering, you know, are they going to find us? Is there somebody that's going to pop out some, from some random place and, and come and kill us or take Mephibosheth from me? But however it happened, maybe it was a combination of all of those. At some point, evidently, she tripped and she fell. And when she fell, she dropped Mephibosheth in the process. And when she dropped Mephibosheth, something that we need to understand is this wasn't some small, little, normal fall. This was the kind of fall that you would see in a horror movie. Because as soon as this little boy hit the ground, the only thing that he and the nanny could hear for probably the, se the next several moments was the breaking of several bones and the screams from this five-year-old little boy. Because with that one fall, he completely mutilated both of his legs. 
He had broken them so badly, probably in multiple places in that one fall, that he was crippled from then on through the rest of his life. And we don't really know how, but somehow they did end up making it to safety. And it could have been that the nanny was able to pick him up with his mangled legs just dangling there, or maybe somebody else came up and helped them. But regardless, they were able to get to safety. They were able to get to a place, this land called Lodabar. And that's where he lived. Up until the point to where we get to this text, that's where he has lived. And something we need to understand about Lodabar is Lodabar literally means the land of nothing. That's what it means, the land of nothing. And so this boy had traded the palace and royalty and the wealth and the provision and the safety that goes along with it for literally the land of nothing. And that is where he's had to live his life and grow up. And something else that's so horrible about the situation for this little boy is the fact that they had to keep all of this a secret. They couldn't really tell people that he was still alive. Very few people actually knew where he was, actually even knew that he was still alive. And the reason that they had to essentially hide him in this place is because they were afraid that the Philistines would eventually find out where he was at and would come and finish the job. Or that the new king, King David, would find out that he was alive and that he would come and finish him off. And the reason they were scared that the new king, King David, would come and do that is because it was very customary back in that day and age for the new king, if it was from a new line, a new bloodline, that new king on the throne would actually have people go out and kill, slaughter, everyone that was alive from that former king's bloodline so that nobody could rise up and take the throne from him. That was very common back in that day and age. And so his whole life, from the time that he's five years old all the way up until this point in the story, and he's a grown man. He has a wife and he has a a little boy at this time himself. That's how old he is at this point. His whole life, all the way up to this point, has been marked by shame and by fear. Fear that somebody would come and, and kill him. Wondering, is today going to be the day that the Philistines find me? Is today going to be the day that I see David and a bunch of other soldiers coming up to take my life and maybe even my family's life? Constantly wondering, constantly looking over his shoulder, wondering, is today going to be the day that I die? And his his life was also marked by shame. Because for one, he was the grandson of the former king Saul who almost wrecked the entire nation of Israel two he was also living a life of poverty and three and this is really the biggest reason because he was crippled and both of his legs and see in that day and age if someone was was lame if they were crippled really if they had any kind of defect even if it was a smaller defect at all they were looked down on they, they were looked as at as very shameful Very shameful. They were looked at as though they were no good. Good for nothing. Might as well be dead. That's how he was looked at. And that's how people would even identify him and even calling him names. And so that's how his life has been 
marked. That's how his life has been described and defined ever since he was five years old, all the way up until this point when he's a grown man with his own family. A life of shame, a life of rejection, a life of fear, and a life of low self-worth as a result. And then one day, probably outside, maybe with his family and and maybe he's trying to do just a little bit that he can to try to help his family. He's crippling both of his legs, very different time frame. This is thousands of years ago. So he wasn't able to do a lot of the things that we can do today if you have those issues. And so probably doing a little bit that he can. And he, he looks off in the distance and he sees someone coming up the road. And he sees it several men. And, and then as they get closer, he notices that some of these are, are David's men. And he notices Ziva. And he remembers them because he was Saul's servant before. And he remembers them and... And he's probably in that moment thinking, today's the day. I've been wondering my whole life when they would find me, when they would come and take my life. And today is the day. And so probably panic and fear rushing through his mind. And, and what could he even do? He can't fend them off. He's crippled. He can't run away. They come up to him and they tell him that the, the king wants to see him at the palace, that the king is has told him that he wants to come. He wants to meet with him. And so he accepts the offer. What else is he going to do? And I'm thinking he, he probably goes up and he kisses his little boy, kisses his wife, gives them hugs, probably thinking this is the last time that he's ever going to see them. And they're probably thinking the same. And then he gets, and maybe it's a little chariot, maybe it's on a horse, whatever it was that they were taking him to the palace in. And the whole time, probably thinking to himself, I'm going to die. This is it. I'm going to die. And wondering how is this going to happen because I'm not just, I'm not just from the family line of, of the former king. I'm from the family line of the former king that literally tried to hunt down and kill David for years. Is this guy going to torture me to death? And maybe even wondering, are they going to do something to my family? Maybe I can beg for my family's life at the very least. And so these things probably going through his mind as he's going up and he gets closer and closer to the palace and then he finally gets there. And they let him out to the place where he needs to go up and he's gonna meet the king. He gets up, he approaches the king and he bows down and as much as he can anyways, he's crippled. So. But as he's bowing down, he's probably thinking in that moment, just, man, they're gonna kill me at any moment. Just waiting as he's standing there for someone to drive him through with a sword or cut off his head. And fear coming over him. And, and then all of a sudden something happens that was completely unexpected. Something that nobody saw coming. Definitely not Mephibosheth. Probably not even Ziba. Because I don't think that Ziba even thought that David was being serious. I think he probably thought he was using him to get Mephibosheth there so he could kill him. But David did what every, the opposite, what everybody else expected him to do. Everyone expected him to kill Mephibosheth in that moment. But instead, David looks at him. He looks him in the eye and he calls him by name, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. And he tells him, don't be afraid. I don't want to hurt you. And he begins to tell him that he wants to show him kindness. And when I tell you that he wants to show him kindness, I don't mean just the, the regular, everyday, run-of-the-mill kind of kindness. I'm talking about the kindness that completely changes your whole life. That's what he wanted to do for him. 
And so you would think in this moment that Mephibosheth, if he was physically able to, he'd be like jumping up and doing a happy dance right now, right? I mean, he'd be like filled with joy, maybe even crying tears of joy in this moment. Because for one, the king doesn't want to kill him. He's not going to die that day or any other day by the king. Like the king doesn't want to kill him. He actually wants to do the opposite. He actually wanted to meet him. He wanted to have a relationship with him. And that means he gets to go back to his family. He gets to go back to see his wife and his kid. And, and not only that, but the king also wants to show him kindness and he wants to make him rich. And I ain't talking about just a little bit rich. I'm talking about mega millionaire, if not billionaire, in today's standards, rich. So you would think that this man would be filled with joy in this moment and ecstatic and happy. But check out his response. Check out what Mephibosheth says to David. He says, what is your servant that you take an interest in a dead dog like me? And as bad as that sounds in our culture today, that sounds horrible that he would identify himself as a dead dog. Something that we need to understand about that day and age, that time frame is Frankly, they were just weird in a lot of ways, honestly. Like, especially when it comes to how they viewed dogs. Because I don't know about you, I'm a dog lover. Is anybody else in here a dog lover? Raise your hand if you're a dog lover. Okay. Yeah, okay. You're safe, people. Okay. I, I've got a dog back home, and I love my dog. And so I can't imagine this. But something that we need to understand about this is back in that day and age, they hated dogs. They loathed dogs. To them, dogs were repulsive animals. They wanted nothing to do with them. And a, a dead dog, really anything dead at all, it was considered ceremonial, ceremonially, uh, religiously unclean. It was unclean. And if something was unclean, that meant that you had nothing to do with it. You didn't look at it. You didn't want to even get close to it. You definitely didn't want to touch it if it was unclean. And so a dead dog, a dead dog, hear me, that was something that was unclean and disgusting. Unclean and disgusting. In other words, Mephibosheth had compared himself to worthless garbage. Worthless garbage that nobody wanted anything to do with. That's how he viewed himself. That's how he viewed himself. And he was so full of shame and, 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 and just low self-esteem. It's, it's crazy in this text. He, he was so full of shame and low self-esteem that he just compared himself to the most repulsive thing that he could possibly think of in the moment. A dead dog. And what's really sad about this isn't just the fact that he compared himself to the most repulsive thing that he could possibly think of in the moment. It's really when he compared himself to a dead dog. That's so sad. Because in this text, notice this was after David had searched for him. And after David had invited him to the palace. And after David had told him not to be afraid. After David to show him kindness. And not just a little bit of kindness, but tons of kindness. After all of that, Mephibosheth compares himself to the most repulsive thing that he could possibly think of in the moment. 
It was almost as if Mephibosheth couldn't even hear what David was trying to say to him because he was so consumed in his own shame. He couldn't accept the love and the compassion and the promises that David wanted to give him because he couldn't even accept himself. To him, Mephibosheth was nothing but a dead dog. He was worthless, good for nothing, no good, might as well be dead. That's how he viewed himself. But that's not how David viewed him. See, when David looked at Mephibosheth, he saw the man that he had searched for. He saw the man that he longed to meet, that he invited back to the palace that he could not wait to meet, that he could not wait to have a relationship with, and that he wanted to show kindness to, not just a little bit, but abundant kindness to. But even deeper than that, see, it goes much, much deeper than just that for David. Because this invitation that David was giving to Mephibosheth, it wasn't just an invitation to show him kindness. Check out what David was giving Mephibosheth an invitation to become. This is in verse 9. Check this out. Then the king summoned Saul's attendant, Ziba, and said to him, I have given to your master's grandson all that belonged to Saul and his family. You, your sons, and your servants are to work the ground for him. And you are to bring in the crops so your master's grandson will have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, don't miss this, your master's grandson is always to eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Ziba said to the king, your servant will do all my lord the king commands. So Mephibosheth, catch this, ate at David's table just like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. All those living in Ziba's house were Mephibosheth's servants. However, Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. His feet had been injured. So most of his life, Mephibosheth viewed himself as nothing more than a dead dog. And most of the world around him viewed him in the same way. He was the crippled grandson of the dead King Saul. And he was probably really used to people calling him names like worthless, less than, no good, might as well be dead. And that's what he had believed. But that's not how David looked at him. See, when David looked at Mephibosheth, he saw a son. He saw a son. See, because of David, Mephibosheth was loved and cared for as a son. Even when the rest of the world, including Mephibosheth's own shame, had beaten him down and had deemed him as worthless, David had adopted him in as his own. And see, that's what this invitation was really about. The invitation that David was giving to Mephibosheth wasn't really about inviting him in so that he could show him kindness. The kindness was just the icing on the top. 
The invitation that David was giving to Mephibosheth all along was about Mephibosheth becoming a son. And think about how significant that was for him. See, almost his entire life, Mephibosheth had been fatherless. He had been deemed as worthless, as an outcast, as a reject, as no good. And now he is the adopted son of the king, which also meant as a result that he is one of the wealthiest and one of the most well-respected men in the entire nation. See, through this story, David paints this incredible picture of what what true undeserved kindness looks like. Showing kindness, abundant kindness to someone who has done nothing to deserve it. And it generates the question for us, how can you show kindness to other people the way that David did? Even when they've done nothing to deserve it even when you get nothing in return. Who can you show kindness to and how can you show kindness to them? See, in this story, David showed Mephibosheth undeserved kindness because his father Jonathan had first shown undeserved kindness to him. And in a similar way, we are called to to show undeserved kindness to the people around us because Jesus Christ first showed undeserved kindness to us. When he went to the cross meant for us and he paid for our sins and our place. But the undeserved kindness that David showed to Mephibosheth and the undeserved kindness that we're called to show other people isn't the only thing that we need to draw from this text. It's one of the things, but not the only thing. Because something that we need to understand as we approach this story is the fact that we're all like Mephibosheth. Every single one of us is like Mephibosheth in some way. Mephibosheth was a real man. He had his own real problems and struggles and issues in life, and some of them were different than yours. But hear me, every single one of us has experienced shame in our life. Every single one of us has been beaten down the world in some way. Every single one of us has been tempted and still tempted to this day to give in to the lies that tell us that we're not good enough that we're never going to be good enough, that we're not worthy, that we don't measure up, that we're not accepted, that we're rejected. And the list goes on and on and on and on. And hear me, this is what Mephibosheth had believed for his entire life almost, all the way up to this point. Until one day he was given an invitation. He was given an invitation to experience a new life. He was given an invitation to trade his shame and his rejection for acceptance and worth. David had given him an invitation to a life to experience peace and comfort. A life where he could experience care and love and provision for by the king himself. A life where he could trade the slums for the palace and his rags for royal robes. But ultimately, the invitation that he had received was an invitation to a seat at the king's table as a son. And guys, something that we need to understand is 
is the fact that because of Jesus, we've been given an invitation. Because of Jesus, we all have a seat at the table. Hear me, you don't have to go through your life consumed by shame and by guilt anymore. You don't have to go through your life feeling unloved, rejected. You don't have to go through your life fighting to try to be good enough just to be told that you don't measure up. You don't have to go through that anymore. Because you, every single one of us has been given an invitation. An invitation to experience a new life. An invitation to trade our shame and our rejection for acceptance and work. An invitation to exchange our guilt for forgiveness, our anger for love. An invitation to experience a life where the measure of your worth is seen at the cross, where Jesus stretched out his arms to show you your worth. Every single one of us has been given this invitation by Jesus. Every single one of us has a seat at his table. The only question is, are you willing to take yours? Are you willing to accept the invitation, your invitation to a new life, a better life through Jesus? Here in just a moment, those of us that have already accepted this invitation, those of us who are already followers of Jesus, not perfect, don't have it all together, don't have all the Bible memorized and all these other things, broken people that need a perfect Savior, but people who have accepted the invitation and are following in his footsteps, we're going to have the opportunity to come to his table here in just a moment. And this is the table that we have right now. One day there's going to be a much bigger table that we get to share together, and I can't wait for that. But here in, an here in just a moment, we're going to have the opportunity, those of us that are followers of Jesus, to come and take communion. And communion, I I've said it like this, it's, it's kind of like the representation of our intimacy with Jesus. It's similar to a, a man and a wife, a husband and a wife, renewing their wedding vows to each other, where we are renewing our commitment to Jesus, saying, here I am. Even the broken and the dirty parts of me, here I am, all I'm all yours. I'm all yours. And we remember what he's done for us, who he is, and who he calls us to be. So here in a moment, if that's you, you're gonna have the opportunity to take communion. But if you're here today and, and you've never accepted that invitation, You've never accepted your invitation to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Then I want to encourage you not to take communion. I want to encourage you to take that leap of faith. I want to encourage you to accept that seat at the table. That's available for you. It's available for every single one of us. And there's nothing that you could do to ever deserve it. Mephibosheth did nothing to deserve this. It was undeserved kindness. Grace. It's grace. 
And that's the point. You can't deserve it. It's about what he's done in your place. And so if you've never done that before, if you've never accepted that invitation, that I want to encourage you, don't wait. You can do that right here, right now. It's not limited to just Sunday mornings, but there is something so powerful. When you do this on a Sunday morning, when you do this surrounded by the family of God, because that is what we are. We are a family. And we'd love to come, come and give you a hug. We'd love to, to talk with you about this if you have questions about it. Or if you're here today and you have prayer requests, whatever it is. Here in just a moment, I'm going to pray. Whatever God's putting on your heart, the altar will be open. There'll be a prayer team, so if you come up and you need prayer, if you have questions, then we'll come up. We'd love to pray with you. For those of you that are taking communion, there's not going to be an usher that's going to come up and tell you, okay, now it's time. This is between you and Jesus. We don't want to dictate how you do this. You pray, you come up. That's your time with him. But I'm going to pray in whatever God is putting on your heart. Don't wait to respond. And if you're responding to him, Jesus Christ for salvation, if you are accepting that invitation today, or if you want to learn more about that, then please, please do not leave today without telling someone. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the invitation that you've given all of us because of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the fact that every single one of us has a seat at your table with our name on it. And you're just waiting for us to accept this invitation, waiting for us to come into your family. Father, I pray that you would help us just to rest in your arms. I pray that you would help us to find our identity in you. I pray that you would help us to hear your voice speaking through the lies, the shame, the guilt, the rejection, anything else that is beating us down. I pray that we would hear your voice through it all and your love and how you see us. Jesus, we thank you for what you've done on the cross for us. I pray that you would help us, Holy Spirit, as we come up and as we take communion together. I pray that you would help to remind us of this. Remind us of what you've done. Remind us that it's only because of Jesus that we get to experience this new life. And remind us that maybe we're not in a certain place that we wanna be yet, but thank God we're not, we're not the people that we used to be. And the fact that you are not finished with us yet. We thank you and we love you. And I pray all of this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Guys, first off, I just want to say thank you for joining us today for the sermon. And uh, whether you're somebody that's come to our church or you're somebody that lives locally, you go to another church, maybe you don't even live here. Um, I, just want, I just want to say first and foremost, thank you for joining us. And uh, I, I want to encourage you to, to respond in some way today because, you know, when we hear a sermon, when we read the Bible, when we, um, whatever it may, may be, the point of that is um, for God to speak to us in some way, shape, or form. And so if you are a Christian, um, you've been a seasoned Christian, you know the Lord already, then the way that we can respond is just by, you know, asking Him, God, what do you want me to do with the convictions that you're giving me 
uh, based on this sermon, the way that you're speaking to me. What do you want me to do? And then respond to that. Maybe it's an area of your life that you've been holding on to um, and, and you haven't been giving it to him. And I want to encourage you to give that to him and step out in faith. Or maybe if it's, um, you know, some unbelief that you've had and, and God has really convicted you of some things. Um, you know, whatever it may be for you, it's different for everyone. I want to encourage you to respond to God and, and step in His direction. And, and the other thing too is if, if you are somebody that maybe you've listened to this and you've never responded to that gospel message, you've never been, been impacted by that gospel message, but now something is happening, God is kind of stirring in your heart and in your mind a little bit, then I want to encourage you to step out in faith, respond to that gospel message. And throughout the book of Acts, um, Acts tells us our history as a church. Uh, it shows us that you know, what that response looks like. So number one is to repent. And this word repent, all that means is just to turn from you know, our sinful ways, our sinful desires. You know, Turn from making ourself God and all these other things in life God. And turn to God and just give Him our life. Um, and, and then on top of that response, after the repentance, there comes something else. It's called baptism. And, and baptism is so key. It's so important. It's seen all throughout um, that book and Acts and, and the importance and significance of it. Um, it's this symbol of death to the old self and, and then um, birth to uh, this new life in Christ. And we're, 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 uh, we die with Christ to the old self and we are raised with Christ to, to walk in this new life. And it's a command from Jesus. So I want to encourage you, if you have made that commitment to Christ, if you've stepped out uh, and you are wanting to follow Christ, then I want to encourage you to take that next step and be baptized somewhere. Whether it's if you have a local church that you want to go be baptized at, I encourage you to do that. Um, if you don't have a church, we would love to be able to celebrate that with you um, here. But I encourage you first and foremost to do that, to, to talk with someone, um, to get counsel on what this means, to seek discipleship as well. So. Uh, I encourage you to do those things. We would love to talk with you. We are praying for you. I want you to know that you are loved and you are prayed for. So if you're ready to take that next step in your relationship with Christ, um, and if you want to take that next step with us, then we, are, we, we would welcome you with open arms. And so there's some links that we're going to provide below for you. Uh, please check that out. Um, and again, if you, if you have any prayer requests, um, please contact us. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to talk with you. And we're excited about taking this next step with you.